1: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Hello and
0: welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson, and I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this show, we talk to extraordinary people who have overcome trauma or adversity in their early lives
2: to achieve great success. Our guest today is one of this country's most successful businessmen, who made his millions in the city before turning to philanthropy and the arts, and was once named as the most powerful black man in Britain. Sir Damon Buffini was a founding partner of Europe's largest
0: private equity company, Pamira. Over almost three decades, it turned into a £20 billion empire that had amassed brands including Hugo Boss, Travelodge and the AA.
2: Since leaving Pomera in 2015, he's become chairman of the National Theatre, the Royal Anniversary Trust, which awards the Queen's Prize for Education, and the Ryder Cup Committee for the
0: European Golf Tour. He was appointed by Boris Johnson to run the £1.6 billion Culture Recovery Fund, which was set up to distribute grants for theatres, galleries and museums
2: to try and help them survive the pandemic. He may be on the UK rich list, but his rags-to-riches stories that began on a council estate in Leicester means he has never taken anything for granted. Once, when he heard his colleagues complaining about the food in a five-star hotel, he asked the Michelin-starred kitchen to prepare burgers the following night. And as the ungrateful partners tucked in, he told them they didn't know how lucky they were.
0: So, Damon, I think I'm right in saying you've only ever done one media interview, and that was 14 years ago. So, thank you very much for being yeah, a guest on *Passage*. Pleasure. Perfect.
2: So, you're chairman of the National Theatre and the Ryder Cup, which is an amazing combination. do you feel more at home on the golf course or in a theatre?
1: Well, both. It depends on, you know, depends on the time of day. And <laughs> at the moment, of course, theatres are, are, are really close, so um, there's no opportunity to, to actually go to the theatre at all. Which is what's a your handicap? Eleven. Oh. Sometimes. If I'm playing well, it can really vary quite a lot, people, <laughs> unfortunately. But, you know, it's um, room for improvement.
0: <laughs> you must have spent most of your time recently on the Cultural Recovery Board. How worried are you about theatres? Do you think that some are going to just go under, not survive?
1: If you, Performing arts is so important for this country, not just in terms of entertainment, but just in terms of soft power. The, the economics that it brings to the country, but also... Community spirit, but just the projection of what we're really excellent at that's performing arts for, for the UK. And, and it's been closed, I mean, literally closed. The National Theatre has been closed since March, and most other performing arts organisations have been completely closed. So that is very worrying. Now, I think that the Culture Recovery Fund, the 1.6 billion Culture Recovery Fund that, um, that was set up in July, is a real lifeline. I mean, it's provided support to something like 3,000 organisations about 70,000 jobs supported directly. Um, and and it, it, that supported buildings, but it hasn't been able to support the freelancers, which is, which is troubling. But hopefully, given the innovation of the arts and you know, the determination of the people in it that I, that, that I know, it, it, they'll, they'll be back. And hopefully the Cultural Recovery Fund will make sure that when the pandemic passes, which it will, know this really important sector for the country will survive and and prosper
0: and do you think that applies to the economy in general as well how quickly do you think things are going to bounce back
1: there's always a recovery like 2000 the the 2007 2008 financial crisis when when we were in that it, it, it was desperate and very difficult and a dark time but there was a recovery there will be a recovery from this but this you've got a combination of economic downturn and a health crisis I haven't really seen that before, uh, not not in anyone's living uh, living memory. So, how the recovery will will come about, what change there will be, there will definitely be some permanent changes. You know, travel, uh, working from home, as we say, working in cities. So we'll have to see how that pans out.
2: We wanted to go back to your childhood and the life you led, which must now feel worlds away, really, from where you were born. You grew up in Leicester. Can you describe what your first home was like? I,
1: I grew up on a council estate. Uh, in Leicester called Thurnby Lodge which uh, Leicester is ringed by council estates so they were a lot of them were built in the late 40s early 50s and Thurnby Lodge was a classic council estate so uh, it had you know the Mayflower pub had the fish and chip shop had you know the green where we play football play football on the street because there were no cars our house is pretty small very cold But the interesting thing about our estate, which I quite often reflect on, it was um, pretty much 100% white. So, I mean, I grew up in a a really white environment. So my mother's white, my grandparents are white, my grandfathers are Irish, my grandmother's from Yorkshire. And the whole estate was, was pretty much like that until Idi Amin ejected the Asians in the early 70s. It was, I, there were very few people of colour on our state. I think, I think I was probably the only one. So
0: did you feel very different? Um, well, I was
1: different. Mm. Um, you know, and that's one abiding memory. But the other abiding memory is I used to go to school on the bus and everybody was going to work in Leicester. But the work ethic was pretty, pretty incredible. Going to the factories, the shoe factories, the hosiery factories, whatever textile factories, um, and it, it, that's where I remember. So, I, do I remember being different? Yeah, but that I don't. I, that's my abiding memory of, of Leicester at that time and that council estate.
2: And was money very tight? I mean, did you, was it difficult for your mother to balance the books? Did you Did you find it hard?
1: Yeah. So my mother worked two jobs continuously when we were growing up, and we never. We were never short of food. Um, we were, it was, school uniform was always clean. We had to hang it up when we came home from school and that still drives me mad because my kids don't do that. <laughs> uh, but, you, but they, we had a support network. So my grandparents were just around the corner. And so they helped out. So when we used to come back from school, you know, we'd, they'd make a jam sandwich and off we'd go and play. And sometimes my grandfather's eyesight wasn't very good. So sometimes we got an instant coffee sandwich, wasn't so great. Okay. But that support network was really, was always there.
0: Do you think your mother made sacrifices for you?
1: Oh, yeah, like working, you know, working two jobs is quite hard, right? So go to work at the Gas board in the day and go and work at the Grand Hotel in the evening. That's pretty tough. tough. That's yeah. tough, yeah. You know, and to do that continuously.
2: Was it difficult for her being a single mother, do you think? Because at the time, you know, there was so much backlash against single mothers that continued, really, until the sort of 90s, didn't it? That sense that you, you, know, that you couldn't be born out of wedlock, whereas now that seems ridiculous. Then it was quite prevalent, wasn't it, that idea that you had to have two parents with you?
1: Yeah, so my mother m- met my father, who was a serviceman in the late 50s. So there were, there were a few uh, service, service bases near, near Leicester, at Alconbury and Lake Inheath, I think. And my mum met my father there, and it was quite, quite vibrant, it was probably quite exciting. Right? And they got together, but um my father had to go back to america in the about uh, 63 something like that and my mother just decided not to go uh, and in hindsight it was the right decision you know if you remember in the 60s in america in lots of states it was illegal to be a mixed-race couple right illegal so in leicester having a mixed-race child was you know unusual but in america it was completely unacceptable so my mother quite right in hindsight decided not to go back that's tough <laughs> That's a tough call, right? So bringing, bringing, you know, us up, me up, and my sister up on her own with my grandparents' support was it's a big decision, a big decision. But it's r- definitely the right decision. Yeah, going back to America and Haiti would have been really difficult.
0: Have you ever tried to find your father?
1: No, no, never really part of my life. Okay. Right, so I grew so up. You've never met him. him never met him. Not really interested. It was just the situation that I was in.
2: And you've um, never had any genetic tests, so you don't
1: know? No, no genetic tests. Other
2: relatives in America? No.
1: We, um, interesting, the company that does the genetic tests, Ancestry.com, we invested in when I was at Primera. Um, so I'm delighted to see they're doing so well. <laughs> but no, we haven't. And, and because, we, because it was just the situation that we were in, we just got on with it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, we were a single-parent single family, and that's how, we, that's how we grew up, and didn't really affect me much. I think it made probably made me more independent from an early age. So I you end up you've got to get yourself to football. You've got to you've got to do the laundry. You've got to cook some of the meals. You've got to make sure the fire works and fill the coal scuttle. I mean, it sounds a bit Victorian, but that's what you Your have to do. Your mum
0: must have been an incredibly powerful influence on you. Then, what was she like? Did she really push you on? Was she very ambitious for you?
1: Yeah, she's she is still. You know, quite feisty, very gregarious, didn't finish her education. She's very bright, but she didn't really finish it. And I think that was a, that's a frustration, was a frustration for her. My grandparents also, you know, they were in service. They'd been in service all their lives. And they, they, they could see, both my mum and my grandparents could see, you know, the power of education. You know, if you wanted to be a you know, respected professional, a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, you, you, you have to be educated. Right? And, and that's why they were so keen... For that to happen and I think when I passed the 11 plus they were they were more relieved than anything else I uh, thought okay you're on the journey now but they re- they understood the power of education and that's I think that was really instilled in, yeah. in me.
2: What did your grandparents do? Uh,
1: my grandfather worked for the Guinness family and then my grandmother was also the lead cook at the Leicester one of the Leicester sort of Clubs, men's clubs, or whatever it's called, I don't know what it was. But she was a very good cook, great apple pie, and great apple crumble. So
2: again, enormous work ethic. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah they were. My grandfather was working too. He was like seventy-eight.
2: Right. Did you get a prize for having got the eleven plus and got into your school?
1: You remember the day. No, no, I no prize. More relief, as I said. Um, at the time, you don't realise. When you're taking it, how life-changing that is! Certainly, at that time, definitely was. Then, and, you, you, and it's a very early age, so you know, it's a that's a a real moment in, in someone's life early on for for you know the two pathways to to diverge. Then I went to Gateway Grammar School, uh, Leicester. I don't know whether they did it officially, but they certainly did it informally. Socially selected grammar schools. So if you were from a professional class you went to one grammar school but if you were from the council estate all the council estate boys because it was it was single all went to Gatewood Grammar School so you can imagine how uncontrollable that was so we remember we set the relief teachers blazer on fire with a Bunsen burner and one of the one of the one of the our school was really dilapidated so we had prefabs on the roof from I think probably from the war anyway one of the boys got expelled for setting some fireworks off on the top there I mean it just you know, really bright but quite disruptive. And by the time they were 14 or 15, they, you know, lots of them had stopped working, they just didn't want to do it anymore. And I could have been one of those quite easily. You know, I was quite sort of confident, probably overconfident, a bit cheeky. But at some stage, I might have slightly gone over the line, I got put on something called School Report, where you had to sort of fill in your behaviour sheet every day. Lesson and stand outside the headmaster's office every break. Oh, God, it was so embarrassing. Mm. It was really embarrassing. I thought, I can't be doing this. have got to get a grip of myself. And um, from that moment, I really changed my attitude and started to work, work quite hard. Um, but I was never the, never the top of the class.
0: Do you think you, because brightest. your father wasn't there, you had a sense of responsibility to your mum that it, almost it drove you on, it made you feel you had to achieve, almost to make up for his absence?
1: No, I ne- that never crossed my mind at all, what there's some things in our, in, there's a phrase in our family which says, don't rest on your laurels. I think it might be a Yorkshire phrase. My grandmother's called Alice Maud Mary Silverside, so <laughs> she's definitely from Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And, and that, what that means, I think, is you know, don't be complacent, keep moving forward. Uh, and I, I think that's what really drove me on. It's nothing, really nothing to do with my father not being there, or it's just, a, as I said, pretty relevant. But it was certainly something in me which said, look, oh, you've, If you want to get out of here, then you've you've got to rely on yourself to do it.
0: So where does that come from, though?
1: It's, I think it's with, in some people, it's in them.
2: Hmm. We talk a lot now, though, about boys needing fathers and how difficult it is that they don't and why it's caused such complications. Do you think that can be alleviated by having very strong grandparents or parents or family systems?
1: Hmm. As a father, I'd like to think that boys do need their fathers, but I've also seen that sometimes families are, are better off without some fathers. And there's no doubt that other family structures, support networks, you know, it can be just as good, if, if not better. Right? And it, we had incredible support from, you know, from my aunts and from my uncles. And you know, that, makes a, that made a difference to us. Yeah, and there, there is a lot, of, there's a lot of research on role models and providing aspiration. But certainly in my instance, that, that support network was really, really really helped me. Do
2: you think actually having working parents is more important, maybe, in that sense of a work ethic that you learn from a family rather than... Certainly seeing,
1: seeing people at work is important. But it's also seeing people that are educated, seeing people that have got on in life, role models... There's lots of factors, I think, that it's very complicated, this, what drives this socio-economic changes, social mobility. It, there are lots of factors. But certainly, I, you know, from my point of view, having that support network that was there that I could go to if I needed it um, was, was, was it's, it's very powerful for me.
0: Did you ever experience racism? If you were the only mixed-race boy in your, the state and in your school...
1: So this is nine. Ni- this is the nineteen seventies. Right? Hmm. So, by the time I was ten, I'd probably encountered every single racial slur that you could ever imagine. Right. Right. Um, you know, prime time TV was *Love Thy Neighbor*, and that's a, that was prime time TV based on racial tension and offensive language. Right. So that just got played back all the time. When it's in your face, right, which it is all the time, it's pretty. It's quite easy to deal with, Because right? you know you can see where it's coming from. You can react. You know you can take it on and the, my peer group you know I was playing football with them it just sort of went away most of the racial thereafter most of the racial racially offensive stuff was you know from older people really you know, I was playing football once and um I'm on the sideline taking a throw and the, the coach so a grown man came up to me and said you know it must be a bit cold for you here son um no. and there's nobody there literally did anybody. There was one man and his dog, and I'm running along. And this banana was thrown onto the pitch. Mm. If you remember, John Barnes was getting that all the time. So that oh, that, that that happened. Mm. So yeah, I mean, yeah, Do you think
0: that, that made always, you more resilient? That you're all determined to prove the racists wrong.
1: At that time, it was par for the course, right? That's what you grew up with. There's lots of things that drive you on. You know, your economic circumstances. The fact that you, you believe that you're different, and maybe you're an outsider, but but that sort of behaviour, you just got on with it.
0: So, what do you think made you want to work so hard, and why did you want to achieve academically?
1: Well, I said I was never the I was never the brightest at, at school. I was never top of the class. For for me, it was always it was ten percent inspiration and nine percent. Application, perspiration so it was all more hard work than anything else but it was it became obvious that if you were going to do something with your life you had to education was the the pathway and as I said my mother my grandparents none of them went to university but they could really see the power of that
2: and why did you want to go to Cambridge had you seen uh, pictures of it had you been there no no, I I, I
1: decided I wanted to be a lawyer so I said to my aunt who was about 14 I said I want to go and do some soliciting (laughs) <laughs> and, and she said, I don't think you really mean <laughs> that. Uh, but I wanted to be a lawyer because they, they were respected in the community and um, that, was, that was important. My grandparents thought that was really important. But Cambridge was never on the rise at all. I'd had one or two people had gone to Cambridge from my school. I'd never been to Cambridge. But when I did well in my A-levels, really well, they said, well, you know, why, don't you, why don't you apply? So I so OK. So I went and had an interview. And I met this great character called Dr. Peter Linehan, who, he was Dumbledore before Harry Potter. (laughs) Unfortunately, he passed away last year, but the last time I saw him, he was wearing a cloak. I was telling you, he's great. And he interviewed me. I think he could just see that academically, I was probably bright enough, sociable, sporty. And he just thought, okay, you'll fit the bill, you'll do well here. I think the criteria might have changed somewhat in Cambridge now. But... At that time, that really did fit the bill, and he really took me under his wing. And he, um, you yeah, know, I, I passed the interview and got in. And I'd only been there once. I went. I went for the interview.
0: So, what was it
2: like when you arrived? Oh, it
0: was like the
1: moon. Okay. <laughs> it's beautiful, right? I mean, it's mm. an absolutely stunning place.
2: And did you have to wear gowns and have formal? Only for only
1: once or twice. Not. It's not like it's not like Hogwarts. But it was. But it. But it is. 15th, 16th century, new court, third court, incredible.
0: Did you love it or was it intimidating?
1: I really, I, the work was fine. Social life was great. I made some great friends for life and I still have have them. But it was, uh, actually, it was probably the the only place before or since where I came across really unpleasant racism. Really? In what form? Well, for the first couple of years, it was fine. Right, I got on everybody. And then in the third year, just a group of group of my peers who I thought I knew just decided that they'd make my life misery. And they excluded me from you know, sports societies, cocktail parties, all, everything. And it was really, we were about, it was really insidious. You, know, you can't, couldn't really find out why they were doing it. I think one of my friends said, you know, the reason why they're doing it is because they don't think you're a real gentleman. No. Can you imagine?
0: And <laughs> were they all public school-y types? Yeah,
1: or? you know, and...
0: Was that racial, do you think? Or was it social? What, what do you think was driving it? Well... Was it impossible to say?
1: It, impossible to say, but I would say definitely a com- it's a combination of both.
0: Mm. Have you come across any of them again? Mm.
1: Now and again. Now and again.
0: Did you and confront them about
1: it? It's very hard to, to do that.
0: Yeah.
1: We sort of on your own. I mean, there, are, there were... at Cambridge at the time, really the only other black people, there might have been a few, but most of them were African princes. So not... Right not well, many from my background. So very hard to call it out. Um, and that's why that if, when it's in your face it's a lot easier to deal with when it's like that it's very hard.
2: Mm.
0: Which
1: is why institutions you pick yourself
2: up, then? it's very I mean it must be really difficult well, right at the end when you thought you'd made all your friends what's, a, what's the choice? Yeah.
1: What's the choice? So move on and just think if you're in a, ever in a position to influence something like that just make sure that doesn't happen. Which is why it's so important now for these institutions to really be close to what's going on in them. And and I I think Cambridge, you know, is much better now. They have a lot of outreach programmes. They're spending a lot of money on trying to reach that cohort of of young people, whether it's white working class or, you know, people of colour, um, to try and get them in. So the mindset is completely different now and lots of programmes. But there's, there's more to do. I mean, I know they, they accept that. The current vice-chancellor, it's nearly top of his agenda to, to do something about this. But it, I think it's a different different place now. They really understand that trying to broaden out the intake is, is important for them.
0: But what do they need to do more? What do you think? Do you think they just... Well, I think one of run? the
1: one of the real issues that you have is that uh, lots of the people they're trying to attract just don't think it's for them. Hmm. Right? When I said they, they do think it's the moon, right? They think it's full of... Public school people, they think it's too much like hard work. They won't meet anyone like them there. It's just not for them. So you have to get get it over to them that it is, they will enjoy it. It is for them. It'll really help them in their their career. So that's the point of this outreach, just to persuade them to apply
2: was it a game changer for you that being able to say that you'd been to Oxbridge, that, that opened doors in a way that you think you wouldn't? Have done? Sorry, Cambridge. Oxbridge, yes, Cambridge. Cambridge. You always say Cambridge. Uh, you don't, Oxford like, you don't like the Oxbridge.
0: <laughs>
1: Cambridge. Uh, well, it sort of was. Although I did law and I really didn't like it, it, it wasn't for me. So I left Cambridge without a job. I, I could have gone and worked for a law firm. I just thought, no, I'd, I'd do this all. You know, I'm not going to be very successful. So I, I, left, I left without a job. Um, but then I, I, I'm sure it was helpful. I found a, going to Cambridge, I found a small consulting firm called the LEK Partnership. Um, it was three partners who worked for Bain who left Bain and set up on their own. And it was a really entrepreneurial, vibrant, small, you know, I was employee number nine. We were in a basement in St. James's Square place. I'm sure the fact that I went to Cambridge got me in the door. But it was, it was, exactly, it, it was, it was great. And then one day they were on the, were on the partners, Ian Evans, who I subsequently got to know very well. said, look, you know, if you can get into Harvard Business School, we'll pay for you to go. We'll pay half of, we'll pay for half of it. Um, so I said, great. So I left, left his office and I said, well, I wonder what Harvard Business School is? <laughs> I no idea. And I thought, okay, this looks quite interesting. So I applied and I got in and they, they paid for a half. So I paid did, for half.
0: How did that compare
2: to Cambridge?
1: Um, it was much
2: more expensive. <laughs> That's for sure.
0: You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest, Damon Biffini. There'll be more from us after
2: this. To celebrate the beginning of spring, save 50% on full digital access to The Times and The Sunday Times for six months and stay well-informed on the latest stories. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash sale forward slash past imperfect and subscribe today.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Welcome back to Past and Perfect with our guest this week, Damon Buffini, the businessman, chair of the National Theatre and Cultural Recovery Fund. Is it true you doorstepped one of the executors
0: and wouldn't let him into a party until he gave you a job? I
1: think it, was, it, was, it was Black Monday, 1987, and uh, the weather was terrible, so I, I was five minutes early for this sort of milk round type interview, um, and Nick Ferguson and... So Wynne Bischoff who ran shows at the time it, they were both there so I had 15 minutes, everybody else was 10 minutes late so I had 15 minutes on my own with the two of them.
0: So just because you were punctual, uh, basically. Yeah, I was early. <laughs>
1: um, and what and did you say to them? I remember I'd sort of just said look I'm very interested in what you do and would love to come and have an interview and you know the normal sort of stuff um, and had a chat about the weather probably and it was it was Black Monday so the stock market had gone down hugely so we talked about that and then when so Wynn said look come and have some interviews in London. Now, if you, if you remember back then, 1984, the city was completely closed to people like me. I mean, that was really old school tie. I think I'd lost my school tie, so there's no chance. <laughs> no chance. And it, it really took posh and closed. But then it was right on the cusp of Big Bang. So by, by the time I was, no, 88 came back when I came around, when I'd, I was le- leaving uh, Harvard Business School. It was still pretty blue blood but there were other things starting to happen you know it's a bit more entrepreneurial so i went to had so i hadn't had interviews at the merchant bank and eventually somebody said well you know damon i i really think that although we like you at the merchant bank i really think that Schroeder ventures is much better for you <laughs> what, what they really meant was that's where we're putting all the sort of oiks and the entrepreneurs <laughs> and go and work there but it was right it was it was Totally different.
2: And did you have to push much harder because you weren't part of the establishment, do you think? I mean, did you look at it and, and were you allowed to, in a way, be more pushy because you were well, push an outsider? is a really strange word, isn't it? I mean, it, it, when you come from a certain sort of background,
1: you know, the opportunities don't present themselves very, very often. Right? So when they do, you've got to take them. Right, You really do. And you know, there's no gap year, there's no retakes. Mm. There's none of that. Right? So there's no safety net. So take the opportunities. And... You know, the work ethic is quite high. And the determination numbers as well, you know, don't take no for an answer. So I think, that, and if you're part of the establishment, whatever that means, you look at that and you think, well, that's, that's really pushy, isn't it? And that's maybe quite aggressive. <laughs> but it's not, it's just where you come from and how you've got to where you've got to. So when they, by the time you, they see you, that's probably an inbuilt characteristic that you then take on. And, and, and lots of outsiders have got that.
0: So actually being outside almost makes you better
2: at your job
1: it can certainly give you that energy and determination to really drive forward. Did you
2: also get that in America? Because I remember there's that sense, when I was there exactly the same after university, that there's a far more uh, energetic entrepreneurial spirit that was in America then in the 80s and the 90s than really was in Britain at the time.
1: I mean, even the word entrepreneur probably wasn't common parlance in the UK when I went to Harvard Business School. There were classes on it at Harvard Business School. So entrepreneurialism, being able to create a business and for yourself, just, you know, I spent a lot of my summers working for the gas board, these big sort of conglomerates, these big businesses, but actually going to be able to start your own business and grow your own business, fantastic, let's go and do that. So a lot of energy, a lot of drive, and, you know, it comes from America, Um, so yes, and that that really opens your eyes as to what is achievable, it really does. Really so is it
0: more me. about making money, your decision to go into the city, or is it about the challenge and the sort of innovation of the thing?
1: So I, I joined Shred Ventures, came became Premier in 1988. And at, at that time, it was a very small, nascent industry. No one really heard of it. And I thought, well, I liked the people. I liked the, you know, what they were doing. Um, very entrepreneur, a lot of energy. Very different organisation. So 30% of the partners were in in the late 80s.
0: Which then would have been really unusual. Very,
1: uh, very unusual. Um, And I could have gone and worked for an investment bank or could have gone and worked for a law firm and earned a lot more money. Um, But, you know, I really thought that they... I'd I'd do well in that environment. I just enjoyed what they were doing and and I thought that would be be quite exciting to do. And it it was. We were just a group of very young people. Most of us were there for nearly 30 years. But we all started at the same time. And we we're doing some really innovative, small, risky investments. you know, making some mistakes. And it was very entrepreneurial. So we met entrepreneurs. We met some that were great and you know, some of them were not. And we made some mistakes, and you learn on the way. And we were all very young, and we used to get a lot of... It was venture capital, so we used to get a lot of people that came in and really wasted our time. You know, perpetual engines and all this sort of stuff. So eventually... We all sat around the table and said, look, the next one who comes in, that's it. And what we, you know, we just show them the door. So anyway, so one of my partners saw that literally. So he went in, this guy came in and gave him his idea. And we, um, the partner said, look, just my advice to you is just don't give up your day job. <laughs> so with that, James Dyson took his vacuum <laughs> And left no, our left. office.
0: Yeah. And there was one moment where the partners started to take themselves a bit too seriously and they were complaining about the food in the five-star hotel. Is that what happened? Why did you decide to challenge that? By
1: that time, we were, we were successful. So this was in the 2008, something like that. Um, and the culture of our firm, we, we, we called ourselves... We all worked together for a long time, as I said... And we called us we when we bought the business from Schroders surprisingly, or well, not surprisingly, the Schroeder's family wouldn't sell us their name, <laughs> uh, so we had to choose a new name. So we chose Pamera, which means um, surprising and different. Uh, and the reason for that is we we built a we thought we built a very a very good business, which was a real meritocracy, a culture where we put you know, our clients first, try to respect everybody we work with. And that was really important to us. And that's why, we, that's why we chose the name, because we thought that was different. You know, It's all well and good saying you've got a strong culture, but you've got to live it. And we went to, we were celebrating. I think we were celebrating raising one of our funds. So we had all of the partners and all the non-partners um, at the dinner in a, in a big hotel. And we were there for two nights. And the first night, it was great. It was a great menu, really good food. Mm-hmm and I think the next morning I'd heard that I heard that some one of the I wasn't I think it was a partner but just complained complained about the food just wanted something different and was a bit rude to somebody who was serving the food and you know, peer pressure is a fantastic thing right so I just stood up and said look you, know, you all thought you are going to have a, a five star meal this evening but you're not there's going to be no choice this is what it's going to be it's going to be hamburgers and chips they're pretty nice hamburgers that's what it's going to be no choice, and the reason for that is because of what happened last night, and it's just not acceptable. I mean, lots of people think they can manage upwards, and they don't, you know, they don't bother about the people that they work with, their peer group, or whatever. And that's that's not the culture we wanted to to enforce. And that's why we, that's why I did that.
2: And do you think that sort of the atmosphere then was out of control in some ways before the first really recession in 2008? No, I
1: this the the city is an interesting an interesting place where one says well, it's really aggressive and cutthroat it's not like that I mean when you when you're in business for 27 years you're dealing with the same people time and time again you're not going to be in you're not going to be in business for long if you don't treat them with respect now there's always there's always a bit of euphoria and there's always a little bit of some some people just don't get it and don't behave in the way that you want that you think they should behave you know, respecting everybody you deal with and it doesn't matter what they are or where they are and it, it, you just have to have to call that out. Do you
0: think that's partly because of your background that you just always had your feet on the ground? You knew that you you just couldn't, you just shouldn't get out of control. You should take thing, you should respect other people, and also be grateful for what you've got and you've earned.
1: Why well, is it's it's, it, it's important, isn't it? So we I think we I think we knew the definition of hubris, and and we every single office knew that what it was in their own language. I, it it's, it happens quite often. You see lots of businesses that do well, they grow, and for one, one reason or another, they can't keep it going. And that's that was more important for us. Mm. But just the, the culture that we were trying to create, and I believe we did create, we a real partnership that everybody contributes, and it's a meritocracy. That is that was more important. That was just so important for us.
0: Did you always feel like an outsider in the city, or did you because you were so you got right to the top? Did, but was there always something in you that felt that you weren't or going to fit in to that sort of established view? Yeah,
1: so I, I I was always a bit of an outsider. Right, so no no, there's no golf club and tennis club when I was growing up, and you know, as I said at Cambridge, I was sort of meant to feel a bit like as an outsider sometimes uh, in the city or in financial services, or really the upper echelons of any organisations, it's very unusual to see people of colour, right? Uh, it really still is unusual. Um, and that was, that was definitely true in the you know, 90s. So when I walked in as a managing partner of Pimera, you imagine a few eyebrows were raised, and, and we had offices all around the world there. And we were thinking about opening in South Africa, so you can imagine how that went down, you know, managing partners coming in, it's me. Um, so yeah, it was, it was unusual for so me. So, what
0: do you feel about the Black Lives Matter campaign? Which do you feel it got wrapped up in a sort of wider left-wing anti-capitalist politics?
1: So BLM clearly came out of overtly came out of uh, hideous images and what happened there was terrible. But I think it's it's a reflection of you know, the sort of slow progress of civil rights in its broadest sense. And, and I can identify with that. You know, there's a lot of talk, mm-hmm. um, and, but some action, but poor results. So I can understand that. Now, you, you, having lived in both countries, America is totally different to the UK. This race issue in America is it's ingrained, it's vicious, and it's violent. I mean, when I was there, and my wife was my now wife was working as a lawyer, and I went to see her with one of my white friends. And the receptionist just looked at me and him and said, "Hello, sir. How can I help you?" And turned to me and went, "The mail room is on the right." No. Yeah, and you know, pe- chased by people with you know baseball bats with violent intentions. Mm. That it's different here. We've got our issues, right? We've mm. got our issues: windrush, stop and search. We've got all sorts of issues, mm. but this country is much more multi it's multicultural there's something in our makeup that is multicultural so we we, BLM and how how it applies to the UK is different but we we do have real issues I mean opportunities the access to the top areas in society they're, they're real issues that we have to deal with
2: do you think it is more about class than in some ways in Britain? Because you must have seen people at your grammar school who you knew were really clever and didn't actually achieve in the same way. So sort of huge lost opportunities.
1: I've seen a lot of people that you might call up middle and upper class not achieve either. So it's not, I don't think it's as simple as that. It's, I think it's, this achievement, is, it's, it's a real combination of you know, aspiration, Someone letting you know that there's a lot, there's a big world out there, and you can do whatever you want. You know, access to opportunity. You know, lots of working-class kids don't have, don't have the access to opportunities, and you know, that, that's clear. And lots of companies are trying to do things about that. You've got role models. You know, if you've never seen anybody make it, or if you have seen people make it, then you know that that's very helpful. There's all sorts of other things, right? The diet, you know, school meals. You know, young people not have any breakfast before they go to school right free school meals the quality exercise i mean it's all that combination now you know when i was growing up there were, as i've said there were lots of kids that were brighter than me you know, i was never top of the class so there has to be some element in there that's different
0: so why do you think you made it and they didn't
1: a the combination of self belief self help and help from others so I did believe I could do it for whatever reason Mm -hmm. Um, I was helped by a lot of people so you know my wife and my tutor at Cambridge and Ellie Kay and the partners at Pemera and I surrounded myself with really really good people I'm quite I'm quite happy for people to think or be brighter than me and we we have a conversation make a decision like that so that's really helpful on an individual basis though as I said hard work you know, the harder you work, the luck you get. I-, I think that is really true. More opportunities come, opportunities come your way. You know, people see that. They give you more responsibility. Um, but the human element, right, so empathy.
2: Yeah.
1: When I... I was at Pemera for 27 years. And when I was interviewed there, I was interviewed by about five or six people. This is 987, right? So five or six people... And um, I got the job, and I thought it was great. Really, must be absolutely super bright. About six months later, I asked the partner, why did I? Why did they give me the job? And um, they said that when you came out of the elevator, you were the only person to look the receptionist and the secretary in the eye and say, good morning, how are you? She came back straight into his office and said, you've got to hire him.
0: Really? So it's courtesy? Yeah.
1: Well, it's just empathy, Manas, isn't it? It's yeah. manners, empathy. I. Mean, it, it, I always say that people like to work with people they like, right? mm-hmm. it's very important.
2: And you've made a lot of money, but you've also given a lot of money away. Why is that, do you think? Do you feel a necessity to, or is it guilt, or is it just a sense of giving back?
1: So we live We, we live here, we live in this country, we think this country is a really good place to be, We're proud. I'm proud to be British, uh, and, yeah, but we have, we have some issues right, in this country. Um, you know, and one of the, the we started a foundation 15 years ago now, and the focus of that foundation is really to give opportunities to you know, young people that wouldn't otherwise have them. Because I I think if you can if you look at that talent and you can nurture that talent and give people the opportunities and they grasp them, that's going to make this country a better place. So that's what that's what we do. We do that in you know education, bursaries, we apprenticeships. We have got people in performing arts, schools, whatever it is, it's all about giving young people a fair crack of the whip.
0: So um, it's not about the sort of gap between rich and poor. It's about giving everyone the chance to make it. The, oh.
1: I the, There are two important things there. So education is so important, right? especially in this globalised world. You know, in, in some of the Asian countries, Bangladesh, they're getting paid by the minute. Right? So we're not going to be able to compete on that basis. We're in the knowledge economy. So that means our people have got to have knowledge. (laughs) They've got to have a good education. So that access to education is so important. But then, once you've got it, you've got to have access to the opportunities. And that's one of the issues, right, that everyone recruits in their own image. You're looking in the same place all the time. So broadening out that access and combining it with education will make a difference.
0: Do you have a sense at all that um, a sort of disaster can also be an opportunity, that in a way a, a small, nimble company now can succeed when the larger corporations are perhaps so seem every, too old-fashioned?
1: Yeah. I, every industry, every single industry is being disrupted. Right? And, and, and that's because you've got the transparency of the Internet and you have this global market. So you re- literally can access hundreds of millions of customers from your desk if you have the right idea and the right energy. Right. And so that means it's in the old days, um, that's on my grandma. In the old days, <laughs> uh, it's, it, you know, it was big versus small. Uh, you're a big company, you create barriers to entry. Now it's fast versus slow and the faster, definitely going to win. So if you're not in touch with your customers, somebody else will be, they'll, they'll disrupt you. And you're seeing it everywhere. you it So the high
0: street. And you're seeing it everywhere. Hmm.
1: No, Really, visit, the real visible aspect of that is high street, but you're seeing it absolutely every single business.
0: So, for you, what do you think is the secret of your success? Do you think it's uh, sort of dedication, or luck, or character, resilience? What What do you think it is?
1: You know, all, a combination of all those. So, we've, as I've, I think, hard work is just crucially important. Being able to interact with lots of different people from all different backgrounds. Um, create a team. It, Premier was a team of, of of partners. It wasn't just one person. It wasn't just me. It was lots of lots of us. And that ability to forge that team together, to understand where everyone wants to go, and create that culture and that environment, it's very, it, it, in my experience, that that's really made a difference for me. But you have to be in the. You have to be. You have to get yourself into the right place. You have to have the self belief. Right? You have to believe you can do it. Um, and apply yourself to to, to get there. And then take the opportunities when they present themselves.
2: And what advice would you have given to yourself at the age of 10 now?
1: Think big. So having gone from Leicester to London to Boston to New York, then all around the world, you just realise what can be achieved.
0: Would you ever have dreamed when you were 10 that that would happen?
1: Yeah, and that's what I say to a lot of young people. Mm. Look, it's step by step. And you know, when they looking looking at me, a lot of them will think, "Well, that's just completely unachievable." But I, you know, I was like them, right? And it's, so it really is step by step. But eventually, you, 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 as you said, what would I give my ten-year-old self? What advice would I give you? You say, "Look back and say, okay, look, really is you know, no limit to what you can achieve." Right? I'd also say keep your eye on the prize, right? Because sometimes it's quite difficult. It's very difficult, and you have to get through that. And so, you know, if you've got a goal, just, and you want to get there, just keep thinking about that.
0: What's the hardest thing, do you think, been for you?
1: In hindsight, the hardest, the hardest aspect of my career was probably getting from Thurmbier Lodge, probably into the city, that time period. You know, as I've said, there are no, there's no safety nets, right? It's going to be no second chances. So, looking back, there were a few risks. But not being a lawyer, that was quite hard. It was a good call, but it was quite hard at the time.
2: And has it made you more empathetic, do you think, coming from the background that you did, that you understand where other people in the room are coming from?
1: I used to go to, to school on the bus with you know, the factory workers and the receptionists and you know, everybody. So I know what they're like where they come from and you know so hopefully enables you to identify with all sorts of people and so from you know captains of industry to you know, the people that you know, might you might not know were there but they're just making a huge contribution to the business and or the organization whatever it is so and they've all got their own aspirations and they've all got their own you know lives and therefore treating everybody that you meet with you know with respect i think it's really important right i mean OK, you've got your own agenda and you want to do something, but every, you'd be surprised at how important everybody is to, to success. So I, hopefully I do feel I know I can understand where other people are coming from and try and get on with them.
0: So do you think there is a sense in which adversity in childhood can be an advantage in your later life?
1: Certainly gives you determination, can do, give you that work ethic. Okay, so um, I've been in this situation, I don't really want to be there anymore, how am I going to get out of it? Um, and it, it, it certainly, in my mind, that don't rest on your laurels, I'm not going back there, that gives you that, certainly gave me that drive to, to get to where I've got to.
2: But do you worry then about your own children that they haven't got the same sort of drive, or they've had it too easy, or you've made their life too simple for them or not?
1: I hope, I hope they've been instilled with the right sort of values and you know, their own lives, and that's what I think What you can do for your, your children, right? So, right education, and you hope they make success of their lives. They're good people. I'm, I'm very optimistic about them.
0: Damon Buffini, thank you very, very much for talking to us. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect with me, Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest, Damon Buffini.
2: This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell.
0: To listen back to our previous guests and make sure you never miss an episode, do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and the Times
2: Radio app. Until next time, thanks for listening.
1: If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organizations who are there to help. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.